the maskilim began looking for ways to infiltrate, to go into the Jewish communities, hoping to establish themselves in Russia the way they did in Germany and other places. Now, typically, how do you do that? You identify some weakness in the opposition and the people against you, and you use that opportunity to establish yourself there. So, as you would expect, the Maskilim chose to set themselves up in towns or cities where the education of the Jewish kids there were very weak to begin with, or non-existent in some, some towns. However, as soon as one of their malamdim would open a cheder, the local rabbanim and the chassidim would become very suspicious of him because they realized he's, doing, he's making changes to the curriculum. So for example, the maskilim, they placed a lot more emphasis on diktuk and nach than on halacha and ein yakov. Ein yakov is like uh, stories from Gemara. And the Tzamach Sadek immediately was informed of this new school that was opened up. And these suspicions were uh, agreed upon, that, meaning that uh, they had information, the, the Vad from Petterburg gathered information, and they discovered that the Maskilim were planning to open up additional government chadarim, over the, many more over the course of the next few years, and that in the beginning, the, the main areas that, were, that would be targeted by the Maskilim would be the small uh, um, Jewish communities, little shtetlach, that had no cheder there because there were only 10 families and who's going to open a cheder for 10 families? So the, or, or even if it's 20 families, you know, 30 families. Now the Tzemach Sadiq realized that the one way to fight against this is to make sure every little town has a cheder. Um, and he, he said, I have to beat them to it to make a cheder in these towns. And he also pinpointed a lot of problems with the existing cheder system that was, that was at the time. Um, and he realized we have to fix these things to prevent the maskilim from gaining a foothold over here. So for example, young men who really wanted to learn Torah were basically, there's no real upper yeshiva so much in those days. You got two guys that were, let's say, Two 18-year-olds who wanted to sit and learn all day. No real yeshiva for them. They would just find a chavrusa and they would go to a shul and they would sit and learn all day in shul. But they didn't really have proper teachers. And while their, their motives were very good, they wanted to sit and learn, but they didn't always understand what was going on and they would somehow, sometimes they would make up explanations and stuff like that. Also, many other young men realized that they're not capable of learning on their own, so they just stopped altogether. And this created the biggest problem of all. There were not enough melamdim. Even if we, they wanted to open up schools, there weren't enough teachers. They couldn't find melamdim to teach. So, this is already before the, uh, we're going backwards a little bit, before the conference. This is in 1841, that Tzemach Tzedek changed the structure of the yeshiva in Lubavitch and other places as well. So we already said that, uh, the, we, we, everyone knows, the, the Rebbe Rashab was the one who made the first um, Lubavitch yeshiva, but that was a, a systematic yeshiva that had classes and teachers and all that stuff and exactly what you're supposed to learn. But there, were, there was always like little yeshivas all over the place. Lubavitch always had a yeshiva. But, but until then, the way it worked was, when, when an Elter Bachar or a, a newly married young guy 
would uh, come to the yeshiva in Lubavitch. He, the intention was he's going to learn on his own and he'll learn whatever he wants in, in subjects. And as long as these men sat and learned, they, no one's going to kick them out of the yeshiva. Now, however, under the Semach Sadiq guidelines, the yeshiva would make a more structured curriculum. His son, Harav Yisrael Noyach, who would later become the Rebbe in Niezhin, and his son-in-law, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak uh, Ginsburg, I think uh, one of the old, I think he was like the oldest out of all, if I'm not mistaken, uh, of all the children, of, of all the like sons-in-law, children-in-law of the Tzemach Tzedek, of, uh, yeah, of the Tzemach Tzedek. So they were assigned, they were given the task um, of giving the majority of the shiurim. And the Tzemach Tzedek then accepted 60 sincere students between the ages of 14 and 20. That's a very big jump. How big do you think the yeshiva is to begin with? And when you're jumping at 60 more students, imagine Cheder Chabad decided right now, we're going to accept 60 new students. They're not fitting 60 students in here. Right? We'll need to make new classes, hire new rebbies. So after finishing their studies in the yeshiva, these students, who by the time they were done studying in yeshiva for a certain amount of years, now they're experts in now these guys were sent out to become Elamdim all over the place. And they became the soldiers of the Tzemach Sedek. Right? The front line soldiers fighting the battles. Now three years later, a, a little bit after returning from the conference in, uh, in Petterburg, it's an Elul of that year, of 43, the Tzemach Sedek expanded the yeshiva by establishing more branches in the cities of Dubrovna, Rasasna, Dubromosil, Rudnia, Lyozhne, Kalisk, and Yanovich. And these yeshivas were headed by the outstanding local Hasidic Sherabonim, and an additional 600 students were accepted into all these yeshivas. Um, an additional development in, in this work to, to strengthen the educational system involved Kailo. Right? A young guy gets married, wants to sit and learn for a few years, right? Because before he has a lot of kids and the, the more responsibilities, right? It's much easier when you're younger and you only have one, two kids. So until then, the Tzemach Sadek had been supporting two Kailolim. One was in Hummel under, who, who would be in charge of the Hummel yeshiva? Rabbi Isaac Kamler. And the other was in Babroisk under. Who, who was. Who became Rav in Babroisk in his later years? After he was Rav in Parich for many years. Rav Hill Parich, right? So the, it was the, these two people. Now, until that point, each Kailo had approximately 30 men sitting and learning. Now, the Rebbe told them that each, each Kailo should accept another 15. That's meaning, instead of it being 60 total, now you have 90 total. And the Rebbe said, I'll cover half of the expenses to support them. But the Rebbe wasn't satisfied with these accomplishments. He knew that the Maskilim were spreading their poisonous ideas throughout all of Russia. And he said, I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to fight as hard as I can to, to beat these guys back. And he established an additional, how many Kailim do you think he would have established? He had two and he made another... 90 Kailalim? Wow. Uh, 19 Kailalim. 
And these new Kailalim were under the guidance of outstanding Hasidim who gave, put into their students the fire of Torah and, and the ideas to protect Yiddishkeit and to protect the holy Jewish people. Shortly after he returned to Lubavitch from the conference, so the Rebbe was visited by a delegation, the representatives of Rabbonim, headed by the very famous Litvisher of Harav David Luri. So we spoke about Rabbi David Luri earlier. Earlier, He was the one that they were thinking to bring instead of the Tzemach Tzedek. And they said, no, don't bring David Luri because he's going to fight you on everything. Bring the Tzadik of Lubavitch because he's a pushover and it's easy to convince him of anything. Little did they know. And the Rebbe informed them of the Maskilim's plans in great detail and of the tremendous efforts of the Maskilim to, de- to destroy Frumkeit through their government schools. And the Rabbanim, they didn't realize how bad the situation was. They were shaken. And they joined the Rebbe 100% in his efforts to, to fight against them. On his way home from Lubavitch, Harav David Luri was asked by different Jewish communities that he passed. He said, I want you to speak to us. And in every single place that he spoke, he repeated the same thing. The importance of giving our children the, po- the proper chinuch by a malamid who's also a Yerushimayim and not some masculine who doesn't believe in anything. Now when he was in Vilna, his, his passion was so fiery compared to his normal calm way of speaking that when he mentioned the maskilim, he added the word, he said the maskilim, yemach shimom. And these two words caused, like the communities of Vilna realized that this theory, that the situation's way more serious than they thought. It's like, usually you don't say yemach shimoy on another yid unless they're tremendous rishayim, like shapsai tzvi, for example, right? But in general, even if someone's a, a Russia, you don't say yemach shimoy. You would have to be really, really bad. So, like, like, for example, the, the Yidin who were in the Yevsexia who had no problem arresting the, the Frida Grebe and having him tortured. And when, when, when Reb David Luri yelled this, Yemach Shemam, it, it made the people in Vilna wake up. Now, in addition, besides for all this, the Tzemach Tzedek and all the leading Rabbanim, Chsidim, Isnagdim, it didn't make a difference. They all encouraged Melamdim in every town and village. They said you have to accept additional students, even if the families can't pay. This is Sakhanas Nefashis over here. Every single Jewish kid needs to go to a Frum Cheder. Because if they're not being taught by you, someone else is going to come along and teach them. Like that, that's how girls' schools got started in the first place. It used to be girls didn't go to school, ever. Like by the Goyim or by the Yidin. And then what happened was, they opened up, Goyim realized, oh, let's make girls' schools. And the Yidin didn't have girls' schools. So where did all the girl, Jewish girls go? To the Goyish schools. And in the beginning, everyone said, Ah, you know what, it's, not, it's just girls. They're not mechuyif to learn Torah anyways. And what happened? The girls started to do bad, do bad things. And that's when, right, the famous, uh, uh, really, in Germany, they, they made the first girls' school under uh, Sam Shimshin Rafal Hirsch. Was the, was the Rav in Germany. He fought the Maskilim harder than almost anyone else because he was living in Germany. You could imagine how hard of a fight he had. Um, but uh, you have the famous Sarah Schneer, right, who started, anyone know what school she started? Beis Yaakov. Beis right? Until today, there are thousands of them all over the world. So they, he, they, at that time, right, they said every Jewish boy has to be in some type of cheder that's taught 
or, or, or to be taught by a private tutor because otherwise the, the maskilim are going to come and they're going to chop this kid. And the success of these efforts is almost impossible to measure because we can't really know how many kids this saved. Because um, there's no record for most cities how many chadarim there were, how many kids were in the cheder, all that stuff. But based on the anger, and, and like it wasn't just anger, it was beyond anger that the maskilim started to direct against the Tzemach Tzedek by slandering him, spying on him constantly. Obviously, they realized he destroyed their entire thing. And, and so we don't know exactly the success rate, but clearly the Tzemach Tzedek gave them a severe blow, a punch in the face. Now, during the conference, of the, the, there's going to be a few conferences, so the, the main one that we always talk about is the one that we already mentioned, 1843, uh, during the conference, a number of the Tsar's ministers made it clear that the, non the non-Jews felt that the Yidin were better off financially than they were. Right? Oh, the Jews are so rich. How many Jews are rich? Now, why, why do they think this? Look at the facts. For example, what type of jackets do the Jews wear on Shabbos? Expensive jackets made of silk? I can't afford silk, right? A regular guy on the street can't afford silk. The guy had to wear plain jackets of a cheaper quality. And they claimed, oh, see, this is the reason why the guy hate the Eden so much, because they're showing off how rich they are. Now, at the end of the day, what type of Yid are the ministers meeting on a, on a regular day-to-day -day basis? The rich ones, because the poor Yid's not making it to Petterburg, right? So for every year I rich, every year I meet is a rich Jew. So obviously all Jews are rich, clearly, right? I never met a poor Jew, did you? No, I never, I only know all the rich Jews, right? Now, even though only a small percentage of Yidin were, were living comfortably, and, then, and how many of them were mamish rich? Again, these were the only Jews that most Goyim ever met. They never entered a, a shtetl in their life. They didn't see how everyone's mamish could barely survive. Half the families are starving, struggling every single day just to get by, especially because they couldn't, they couldn't do this job or that job. And another of the minister's facts that they said, that the Jews, they said the Jews don't do manual labor. There's no Jewish farmers. Did you ever meet a Jewish farmer? I never did, right? The Jews are, they think it's beneath them to work the land. They only want to own businesses so they can make a lot of money. Or, or they would lend money to the Goyim for, to make interest. And, and they claim that, the, the, the Goyim believed that the Jews felt it, that it's beneath their dignity to farm the land. I'm not a farmer. I'm a businessman. That's much more chashiv. And it reached a, a boiling point. This, this, the, the way the peasants, the regular going on the street in Russia felt, that summer, there was a drought throughout Russia. And the peasants had no produce from their own farms. And they believed, oh, all the Jews are earning a nice living, which wasn't true, because they're running inns and businesses. Um, in many places, the Yidin were just kicked out from their homes by the Goyim. They said, oh, we're kicking you out, so a Goy could take over. And the Tzemach Tzedek was well aware of these feelings that the Goyim had towards the Jews. And he was also aware 
that the ministers were negatively, they, they thought very bad about the Yidin because of this. Not, not felt bad like, oh, we feel bad for you. They looked at the Yidin in a bad way because of all these claims. And the ministers were mamish planning on doing this. They were going to categorize the Yidin into two groups in order to deal with the Jews that the government felt don't help out anything in the country. One group would have those that the country benefited from them, which is not the majority of the Yidin, right? With uh, how much percent? 5% or less? And the other group would be oh, the ones who suck the economy dry, the ones who don't help out anything, the peddlers, the people who live in the shtetls. Now the first group basically had businessmen, craftsmen, a few farmers, university students. That was about total, that was about 20% of Yidin. So they're going to be dealt with in a nice way. However, the second group, the, the undesirables, the ones we don't want, um, which is the 80% of the Yidin, um, if we need to, we'll just kick them out of, of the country and that's it. We'll tell them to go fly a kite and we'll continue the story tomorrow.